welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we hear about the journeys and adventures of a life in science. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by science communicator, educator, and entomologist, Kirsty Abbott. Kirsty. Hi, James. You're a hard woman to pin down. <laughs> and I'm not even pinned. Look, I'm free. <laughs> you're here of your own free will. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're incredibly busy. Particularly at the moment, uh, this or next week, your your team is about to kick off the Canoga Phillips Science Experience. Yes. Here in Armadale. What on earth is this thing? We're one of 29 universities, actually, that do this thing around the country. Um, it's a science camp. It's a three-day immersive science camp. It started off, Canoka Phillips is the sponsor. It started off with as Siemens. Um, so companies who value technology, science, all that sort of stuff. And also um, who value building aspirations in young people. And, thing. Um, and some universities have just one day or two days, but you can't stay at college. But mm-hmm. UNE have a three-day immersive science program, get into labs, go see the national parks, go to support UNE, but you also get to stay at colleges, so it's a whole university experience. It's for teenagers who probably at the end of their tether in school holidays <laughs> are desperate to get away from their parents. And they um, get lumped with you and you've got to entertain... Yeah. What is it, 30 kids? Well, I think Entertain and inspire and educate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Cultivate their curiosity, be creative with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we've got 24 students this year. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful to be doing it with Siobhan Dennison and Andrea Jaggi this year, who um, are inspirational in their own right and they've put together the program. And so I've done it for the last three or four years. Uh, And it's been academics from UNE that have kind of done it and in fact it was a techie in botany that initially took it on and the logistics because he was so passionate about doing this and he's just kept it going for like 12 Mm. years at UNE. Well now you're overseeing kind of most of the science outreach here at the University of New England. Mm. You're you're the head of... In science. In science and your your team, your little army is called UNE Discovery. Mm. What, What sort of stuff does Discovery get up to? So the team that is Discovery is part of a much larger initiative, I guess, of the university that will kind of, I guess, grow and become um, a much more of a front runner for engaging the university with our communities, local, regional and national. And the idea is that UNE Discovery creates a truly lifelong learning experience at UNE. So whereas the mantra of UNE has always been lifelong learning, you know, as a tertiary institution, we know that it's essentially a school leaver type initiation, I guess, into mm. this lifelong learning kind of thing. But, and that's not lifelong learning, right? Like life starts way <laughs> earlier than that. <laughs> and we know actually that our brains are far more um, plastic and able to absorb information and they're learning much quicker with less energy in the early years. So actually what UNE Discovery is doing is introducing the idea of learning, of capitalising on um, brain plasticity and neurological development in early years to bring concepts that are being generated in universities, so research-led concepts, new ideas, innovations, um, to people who are in those really peak learning years of their lives. How, How early are we talking here? Well, the team at the moment, the minions, are in this kind of mid-space educating five-year-olds to 16-year-olds, and it's a mobile program, so I'd call that our outreach Mm. component of UNE Discovery. Uh, So they go all around northern New South Wales, but we're in planning phase and fundraising phase to create a children's discovery space called the Boiler House Discovery Space Mm -hmm. at uni. And really, that starts from birth because um, one of the the key drivers of changing the value and the perception of education and lifelong learning, particularly in regional, rural and remote areas, starts with parents and their value, their education and their perception of education. So actually it's parents who bring babies to centres, it's parents Mm. that bring toddlers to mini minstrels, it's parents who drive a lot of that and we're hoping to bring small babies, toddlers and families onto campus and often, and I'm hoping that a large proportion of those it will be the first time that they come onto a university campus and over time the idea is, and we know this, there's been case studies of, you know, over time as you as you 
become familiar with a place like this and a learning institution and what goes on here and also how passionate the nerds are right that get, like populate <laughs> universities yeah. <laughs> um, when you realize that there's something in that and that it's useful and it, it helps people improve their lives and that education curiosity creativity and all those sorts of things um, can actually enhance and enrich your life that that's kind of the plan mm. so really as they grow up we scaffold their education from the boiler house discovery space in an early childhood sense through to our outreach where families and children are much more embedded in their schooling than their formal kind of structured learning. We go out to them and provide a bit of play-based curiosity experiential learning there um, in STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts and maths. And then also a part of discovery is is attracting people back of their own volition when they're a little bit older, whether it be to study or whether it be to experience new things like our Natural History Museum or our Boiler House or our Smart Farm um, or our new big library redevelopment that will be going on over the next five years as well, which will be an innovative education antiquities museum and rotating collections space as well. So, yeah, that's lifelong learning, Boiler House from birth right up to if you want to come and hang out and look at Greek <laughs> pottery. Wow. See, that phone, that phone wants to come. in the conference room. <laughs> that's right. But this is a pretty... Uh, broad sort of blue sky approach for a university I mean we kind of see them as just being interested in recruiting like you said high school leavers and things but this is kind of reaching out to entire communities no matter who they are it is why is it important to be reaching out to regional communities it's a huge paradigm shift mm. and as far as I know it's the only we're the only university in Australia doing this at the moment that's partly because to remain relevant as a regional university, as a small, relatively poor university, mm. you know, really, to be honest, um, we, need, we need to embed ourselves into our communities. And our vice chancellor at the moment sort of understands that, that we need to become a broader educator. Mm. And I think that that's happening in the world generally. Um, I, th I think there is less and less siloing of education happening. Uh, and certainly universities in metropolitan areas and in the States and in Europe are partnering with schools a lot more. So they're kind of taking that education, uh, tertiary education philosophy a little bit to younger children um, and also opening up their doors to either online learning or people coming onto campus of older. So that I think that generally that lack of siloing in education, we have to do that to remain relevant. Mm. Um, but also in regional, rural and remote Australia, we know that the further away from a metropolitan area you are, the more disadvantage you experience. And there's a number of metrics that explain that. And in starting in early childhood, there's what's called the Australian Early Development Census. The last one that was done um, was actually 2018, so they haven't actually released all the results from that. But the 2015 one, which I was just looking at the other day, um, shows unequivocally that uh, that regional, rural and remote areas um, have far more children that are developmentally at risk and developmentally vulnerable. And that's for three reasons. Partly they don't have access to high quality education or carers. Secondly, they don't, they're not exposed to the diversity of educational opportunities. So their neural pathways that they're developing um, are not as diverse. Um, and second, and thirdly, their socioeconomic status is such that they hear less words in their life, for instance. Mm. Um, so their vocabulary and their language is not developing at the peak age. And in fact, just on that, it's really nice, like knowing all this research, learning, coming from an entomologist, learning all this early childhood neurological development stuff has been absolutely fascinating for me. Lang language is one of the first domains that develops in children and it's within the first two months of, of life. In fact, mm. it's earlier than that, but it peaks between sort of two and three months and maybe one year old and sort of one to two years old. So if you are not hearing the type of language you want a child to develop at mm. that point in your life, you are immediately disadvantaged. And so in regional, rural and remote areas, that's happening a lot. Um, there's estimates of if you are from an educated family, and we know that actually 
um, academic achievement in school is directly correlated with a mother's education level, which I think right. is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but in early childhood, um, if you're from an educated family, you could be you could be hearing up to two thousand five hundred to three thousand words a day, of which. Um, 60 to 70% of those are new words. Mm. If you are from a really low SES family with um, parents who have not finished high school, for instance, you may only be hearing 200 words a day. Mm. That's massive. Like, that's massive. And so the investment in early childhood um, to change life trajectories is huge. And in fact, so James Heckman is a professor from University of Chicago and he's dedicated his entire life to the economics of human development. And he has calculated that the return on investment in high quality education, early childhood education, is somewhere between sort of 12 and 17%. Now that only decreases throughout life. So the later you intervene with, and you know, we talk about early childhood interventions or mental health interventions or educational interventions, the later we do that in life, the harder it gets, the more expensive it gets and the less likely you are to, to actually achieve success. Mm. And you're doing science outreach, but by the signs of it, that means you're not trying to make every kid want to be a scientist. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think science is life. I think that, <laughs> right? We're a little and, bit biased around here. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> it is, right? Science is asking questions and using a process to, to understand the world around us. And I mm. think that I embed that in, all, in every educational experience I craft and deliver mm -hmm. um, or facilitate. Um, so while we might not identify or might not sort of pigeonhole it as science, I think in everything we do, for me anyway, there's definitely an element of science and the scientific process and the, and the underpinnings that I think science brings to our life. So really, I think just serendipitously, serendipitously if children are brought up with this process, maybe they'll just have that epiphany, right? Like when they're 16 or 18, they're in a science class. They're like, oh, duh, that's what we've already been doing. I'm mm. a scientist. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> so this Boiler House Discovery Centre. Mm -hmm. Why is it called Discovery the Boiler? Space, Discovery James, Space, James. Oh, space. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> centres are for like medical centres, you know. Oh, yeah. you've, you've thought about this, yeah. obviously. Well, there's people <laughs> before me bit. that have thought about okay. this. <laughs> Why is it called the Boiler House? Because it's literally in an old boiler house. <laughs> it was a really obvious one. It's like calling your dog Spot, right? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Um, it's in a boiler house. And it was, it was a very cool process, actually, to find out that this was the best place to put it in. Mm. So the boiler house was really triggered by an approach by a philanthropist to UNE um, about two and a half years ago, just over two and a half years ago. And... Um, the Abbott Foundation, no relation, <laughs> damn it, um, uh, value, very much values the cultivation of uh, what Chris calls the five C's, curiosity, confidence, creativity, collaboration, and a can-do attitude. Mm. Not only those five C's, but also developing these in regional remote um, Australia because he understands the disadvantage, but also the importance of leadership in these areas to promote economic growth, well-being in areas that are disadvantaged outside metropolitan areas. So that just sort of explains partly why he approached UNE as a regional university. And so when he first came up to Armidale, I was asked to look after him and develop the possibility, well, look at the possibilities for what this means mm -hmm. for the university and if we were even going to do it. So we were introduced to a fairly small space with a beautiful indoor-outdoor kind of uh, transition zone and it was in the hub of the university but it was fairly small and it wasn't a big iconic kind of space and mm. it would have been a nice addition to the early childhood like education center that's already here the daycare Yam Gwanga but it, it wasn't a discovery space in the sense mm. of the word it wasn't it's not it was no powerhouse museum it was no you know iconic space mm. Anyway, I got, the, I got this feeling very quickly that this was not going to happen <laughs> if we kept this in this tiny little cottage kindergarten kind of area. So 
Um, and, I, and I love this story actually because it's how great things happen, I think, is serendipitously I was walking across a car park and I came across the, direct, the Deputy Director of Facilities Management at the time and he's like, cool, <laughs> how's the tour of the university going and, um, you know, the space for, with the philanthropist? And I went, actually, not that great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the space is not really appropriate. It's not going to work for him. That's not what he's interested in doing. He wants to inspire people and that's not really inspiring. He wants an iconic destination. That's not really an iconic destination. He wants people to remember it and come back for the building as well as the experience, not just because it's there, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyways, like, oh, right, okay. And he said, well... You know, there's that really cool building up on the hill, the boiler house. It's been empty for like 17 years. Um, <laughs> there's been all sorts of cool suggestions of what it might be from a, you know, microbrewery to a museum to an ice skating rink <laughs> to, I know, right, like a, to a storage space for geological collections. Um, and nothing's happened for many, many reasons. But it's a cool building and it won an architectural award in 1975, the same year as the <laughs> Sydney Opera House. Um, and, and in fact, um, Christensen, who also worked on the Opera House with Utzon, um, designed part of the Boiler House. Oh. So it has very famous history and it's, it's quite an acclaimed brutalist industrial building, mm. you know, in, even in the big scheme of things in Australia. So I asked the VC if it was possible to show Chris this building and she said, yeah, sure, why not? You know, it's what have we got to lose kind of thing. <laughs> so we did. I, I, we went up there and we got out of the car and went, whoa, this is really cool. And we both looked at each other and went, I think this is the place. Mm -hmm. it's the, it has a stack, which um, a chimney stack, which originally just took all the smoke from the furnaces that heated water in the boilers. Um, and the height of that stack is actually the highest point within the Armidale town boundary. And Armidale <laughs> is the highest city in Australia. So we have the highest point of any city in Australia right there in the boiler house. I think that's pretty cool in itself. And for me, that just kind of is a great starting point for talking about, I don't know, geography and physics and climate and imagine what we can put up there. We can put renewable energy um, windmills on a stack like that, all that mm. sort of stuff. So anyway, yeah, we, we got out and went, this is what we're going to do. And basically we've convinced the university and everybody that that's the case and we're doing it. I wonder, what I've learned is that if you're doing something in Australia... There's a chance you can claim it's the first in the Southern Hemisphere because there's not many other places to compete with. So ah. You have to see who got the highest discovery space in. Oh my God, that's Hemisphere. brilliant! I mean, we do have like the Chilean Alps to yeah, <laughs> contend with. Maybe but I don't know that if that there's any discovery spaces up there. <laughs> that's a market research trip right there. Chilean. <laughs> <laughs> <Chile. laughs> there's great ants there too, right? So we can couple that with yeah. But you know why this building had that architectural vision in the first place? Because it. It's a boiler house. It's where they burnt fuel to generate heat. It was yeah. a facility. Yeah. Do you know why it was so fancy in the first place? Yeah. So, you know, we could have just kind of gone, that's a cool building and demolished it and, or, or you know, cleaned it up and started without understanding the history of it. But, mm. um, you know, Armadale's a cold place and the boiler house is pretty much the reason why this university could persist be so people didn't freeze to death in the middle. <laughs> so I was like, that's pretty significant. We're going to start a history of the boiler house project. And so doing that's been fascinating because that the structure itself actually was built in three stages, um, in the 50s and then in the 60s and then 1971 was when this last big brutalist um, award-winning thing was built. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, late 60s, early 70s, was just that the time in Australia where design came f before function. Mm. You know, there was that, and that was when Utzon and, and I can't remember for the life of me now, the names <laughs> of these young um, architects, but apparently it was a time where these kind of spunky young architects were graduating and being given graduate jobs um, mm. and they were designing really cool things and they were upheld as the future of architecture and mm. that's when brutalism came in um, one of them was Michael someone and he did Rob College so Rob <laughs> College on UNE is also uh, a, like a, a result of that era of brutalism ar brutalist architecture 
Um, so, yeah, so it was really designed before function and they had the freedom to do that at mm. that time. So the Department of Engineering, as facilities management was called back then, essentially, and going back through the archives and looking at the meeting minutes and things like that, <clears throat> they really just gave them the freedom to say, we need a space for a big boiler. Mm. They were going to put another small boiler in stage two, but actually by the time they'd gotten to that point, the university had grown so much that it wasn't economies of scale to do that. They just really needed to ramp it up. Mm. Um, so they designed it and then they had to, or they were only given the dimensions of this huge boiler. <laughs> That's all. And given some space that they needed for pipes and mm. tanks and flues and stuff. Um, so they prioritised design over function and then they had to fit the boiler in. There was, mm. a, there was a few issues actually with, <laughs> with operations because of that. But that's why. In fact, one of the classic ones around the back of the boiler house, there's a, uh, like a chute that ash was put into and coal was delivered into the bottom of. And it, has, it had a beautiful circular hole in the side of the chute or the, like the delivery kind of mm. thing. Anyway, as they delivered coal and stacked it up, the coal just kept on falling out the side of this hole. <laughs> they hadn't even, yeah, like walled it up. So anyway, that's now half full, the <laughs> hole. So now you've got this really cool circular hole with like a semicircle extra bit of concrete, which I think adds to the design, but hmm. it was an example of how funny. <laughs> yeah. At the moment, though, this space is behind big barricades and you can't get in there because it's in the renovation stage. Mm. So uh, how much of how much is going to change in the renovations? I'm guessing we're not going to be able to keep it all original and pristine, right? No. But that's the cool thing, I think, about having an industrial boiler to be able to play with that's not mm. heritage listed. And that was a bit contentious to start with too. But, you know, I think anyone that's been involved with heritage listing of an architectural structure will understand that you have a lot more freedom, um, you know, if it's not heritage listed, right? Mm. Which we have. But understanding that we wanted to retain the significance of it um, and the fact that we run a program in STEAM and that steampunk is a bit mechanical and Jules Verne line and alike and all this sort of stuff... Um, the synergies there were just unbelievable. So we can retain this industrial, mechanical, tinkering kind of feel um, and work in a steam, like a playful steampunk kind of design mm -hmm. and retain the history and the narrative of coal-fired um, you know, boilers and old technology um, right through to new technology of the future, um, which means that we do get to retain a lot of it. So... Uh, and actually, during this process, I've learned a lot about industrial hygiene. <laughs> oh, my God, vertical learning curve. But, you know, as a scientist and the remediation crew think I'm hysterical because <laughs> I'm up there all the time asking questions about what's in that coal ash, what, where's that mercury, where did it come from, what are you doing with it, how do you dispose of it, what are the processes of this? Mm. And for me, it's just another scientific learning opportunity, right? I've learned yeah. about how arsenic gets into coal ash. I've learned about how friable <laughs> asbestos was used in the building industry in the 60s. I've, um, and I've also connected with the, um, what was it, the industrial hygiene kind of contamination people mm. that did the demolition remediation plan. And they've said it's been one of the most interesting projects that they've come across not least because of the contamination that they keep finding the more they pull <laughs> apart, but also for them understanding what materials were used. Like really, mm. this is the building for them in the last, I don't know how many, many years they said, that had such a long timeline. So starting from the early 50s right through to finishing in the 70s. And they had, so building materials changed, mm. the, um, you know, asbestos was phased out in the sort of the late 60s 70, or coming into the 70s so but we already knew a lot about putting best asbestos into cement so the boilers that were put in in the 60s have asbestos all through the cement that put the bricks together oh. but the boiler that was finished in 1971 doesn't have asbestos in the cement so it's only in the valves and the friable stuff around the piping and so yeah the demolition crew and the hygienist have learnt a lot about 
have been able to track the changes in material usage and architectural use and values of those materials through time, which has mm. been really, really interesting. Yeah. So when, when is this thing going to open? 2022. Right. And I'm sticking with it. <laughs> <laughs> no later. <laughs> yeah. We, we've sort of always said 2022 just because we knew it was going to be a difficult project. I mean, we were starting with a contaminated industrial site. Mm. We were creating a design that is entirely unique. There's nothing like this in Australia that we know of, let alone uh, in the world. I went to a um, children's museum conference in the States last year and at the international forum everybody was just going what steampunk industrial discovery space are you <laughs> kidding me that's like the best thing ever um, so it's really unique mm. so design phase is going to be iterative and fairly long term I'd say um, and the construction of it it's not a classical university mm. building and we want it to be an iconic tourist destination as well it's as an educational space no way man and I'm not letting this go half assed <laughs> this is this is a learning curve on so many levels and it's an opportunity to show people what we can do in regional Australia um, yeah I can I can see it hosting steampunk conventions or comic cons or something in totally. the future <laughs> I know right we'll partner with the steampunk museum in Omaru for yeah. sure <laughs> yeah. And I think lots of people, they say they're going to do steampunk design, but they just paint some gears on the wall or something. Yeah. This, this has a potential to be full-on actual industrial with lots of original machinery and stuff yeah. in there, right? Yeah, but I think with a modern take on it as well, mm. because as you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with steampunk stuff, or they kind of, there is a perception, there is a bit of a perception out there that it's not kid-friendly, for instance. Um, <laughs> so Depends we, what e-books you read. Or well, what. that's true. Okay, you're right, you're right. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's steampunkers in town, and yeah. people who value and love that sort of stuff, like yourself, and so making sure that the right people are in the design phase is really important. There is. There's, there's what's the, the New England Retro Futurism Society or yeah. something on Facebook. It's a little bit of a steampunk hub and yeah. Antipodean Tinker down in Walker. Yep. Yeah. We do, yeah. Yeah, we do have steampunkers in town. Totally. Well, and also we're working with artists at the moment. So th some items that we've retained from the demolition, um, we're working into public art pieces and sculptures that we'll mm. have around the university and as playscapes in the boiler house. Um, but the artists that we're working with, they are not necessarily from steampunk background or that that's not their thing, but they totally get it and they're yeah. really into it. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Now, this obviously isn't your first foray into community engagement mm. in science. This is, this is your thing. So before this, you were doing things like the School of Ants mm. project around Australia. So your background's in entomology mm. and specifically ants. Mm. And then you took this around the country. Yeah. Tell me about the School of Ants project. Do you want me to focus on ants or do you want me to go back to actually where my community engagement oh. started? Because it's, it's before that and you All probably right. don't know about that. <laughs> sure. I know, yeah, well, you know how it. every scientist has like a past life where you kind of, you know, started research, I guess, and mm. started valuing things. So it was actually in honours where I started my community engagement and it was because I was involved in a project um, in North Queensland with the DPI on the eradication of the papaya fruit fly. All right. And so as soon as I started, it was high profile, it was a dangerous invasive species, it was media, you know, media friendly. It was also, um, I guess high stakes because if papaya fruit fly, if, if the eradication program didn't succeed, papaya fruit fly was going to wipe out the entirety of tropical fruits in North Queensland and all that sort of stuff. So my honours project was my first research project, but it was also high stakes in that I was involved in looking at the impact of these malafian canine blocks, so the eradication sterile male technique blocks pumped full of chemicals that they're putting through World Heritage Area and all that sort of stuff, the impact of those on native fruit flies and rainforest insects. So I'm like, hello research, hello high stakes project. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was immediately thrown into um, communication with government, communication with media, communication with universities, with other ecologists, mm. with um, World Heritage Area. So. Um, that immediately became a really big focus of it and communicating our research to all those stakeholder groups was really big as well as 
um, lay people because all throughout Cairns and the rain, all throughout North Queensland, to be honest, there was these little five centimetre by five centimetre you know, like MDF board, mm. things that were pumped full of um, methyl eugenol or Q, which are lures for male fruit flies, um, and malathion, which is an organophosphate um, insecticide. And everybody saw them all the time. So mm. they, were, they were really front and centre. So I had to become a communicator very quickly. Um, I was really lucky that I had the supervisor that encouraged that, was active in that, and he was a massive talker just like me. <laughs> <laughs> so we got on really well, and it was a good... Um, it was a good partnership, but that's all, I think that's where it started. I was mm. just thrown into that. I never really had... And in fact, after that, I was in the cotton industry um, and I was told that I was a little upstart and that I was... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and how dare I tell consultants and, um, you know, industry professionals what to do when I'm 22 years old coming <laughs> into the cotton industry. And I just thought I was, you know, e- explaining good data and good science and, and good decision-making yeah. on this sort of stuff. So... Um, I was communicating in a controversial environment there. Um, and then my PhD was really um, quite another high-profile kind of world model as well because I was on Christmas Island uh, working with the control of yellow crazy ants there too. So we working with national parks and, again, um, national stakeholders and international because the world was watching us in, a, in an island laboratory where, you know, we're on a place where millions of red crabs migrate to the ocean every year. And David Attenborough said it was one of the seven natural wonders of the world. Mm. And we're like, shit, again, it's this, you know, hello, <laughs> high stakes project. Um, so I think in my entire research career, I have been embedded in these projects where mm. communication of your science was not an option, but it was a necessity, um, not only for impact, but... Um, I think to finish off the research process, I think if, if the work I've been doing was not communicated to stakeholders, including the broader community, I just don't think it would have been finished off properly. Mm. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's where it started. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think my passion for starting school events and, and wanting to engage in, with younger people, because a lot of the work before that was obviously with adults and professionals and government, um, private mm. industry researchers, um, was... I saw Rob Dunn's lab in the States start School of Ants. So the School of Ants started in America, engaging with school children. Mm. And I finished a postdoc in the Pacific. And in the Pacific, same kind of thing, international stakeholders on a Pacific island, yellow crazy ants were wiping out um, food sources of an entire country, Tokelau, smallest country in the world, granted, but... You know, subsistence cropping, papayas, bananas, they were burning them down because yellow crazy ants were were ruining the crops. Yellow crazy ants were killing pets, killing lizards, hermit crabs. Um, Yeah, it was bad. Mm. And kids were there seeing this every day. So I started a school education program for that over there. And then I came back from a postdoc and I had a child. (laughs) Yeah, big, big life moment. I had a child and I went from going, oh, that's cool. I'll just be back in academia in six months. It's cool. I'll just, re- you know, resume my research mm. and everything will be fine to having a kid going, oh, my God, my whole priorities have changed. Mm. Um, I Just this whole world was opened up to me and the potential of children in changing things or changing our perception and communication and understanding of scientific process and all this. I just saw this huge potential where I hadn't seen it before. I'd engaged with it, but I hadn't Mm. owned it, I think. Mm. So I had a child, and that's where I went, oh, School of Ants, Australia. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's cool. I love ants. Ants are cool. Ants run the world. There are ants everywhere in Australia. We don't really know enough about them. Um, There are invasive ants in Melbourne. I was living in Melbourne at the time. Um, There is a primary school up the road. I'll ask the states if I can start it in Australia, and I did, and I became a scientist in school with the the CSIRO Scientist in School program, and I just pitched to this primary school that we do a term of school of ants, and honestly, I can say that it was probably one of the most rewarding things that I've done because I could bring all my knowledge of ant ecology, of invasive ants, of um, I, of community consultation and of and of education 
to this thing. And plus, we just got outside and got excited. And I think, so I did it with a gifted and talented class at this primary school. We, um, we set up the project where we go and look at, we had food, three food sources on a bait card and we put them on paved areas and green areas so that we had the opportunity to look at the difference between uh, ant communities, between food types and between habitat types loosely. Um, we printed ant t-shirts so I made like a, I mean, silk screening we, so we did art sort of stuff as well so we became our, our own colony we were outside every lesson and they learnt about collecting data about um, analysing data and about interpreting it we also then went to the Melbourne Museum and the Melbourne Zoo and working with them collected ants in their outside areas and were able to go back and identify them for the zoo and for mm. the museum and engage as a, as a child you know a school project that way and so again I was putting these kids in a position where they were giving real institutions real information about biodiversity and ants and stuff and they loved that so it's like external communication and they were 10. So you're back here doing community outreach in Armadale that's got to mean a lot to you because you're you're Armadale born and bred right? Yeah. Was it always a plan to end up back here? No, it wasn't. <laughs> so, so when did you leave? To go to university? Yeah, I had a year off, so I actually worked at uni. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a, so at the end of year 12, I was kind of one of those um, over-conscientious students. I'd just come off being school captain of Amla High and, you know, I was in the orchestra and I played every sport under the sun and I, <laughs> I don't, it's just, you know. So, of course, the next step was putting out I don't know, 95 letters to everybody in town going, you need a volunteer, you need, you got any work, you, I want to do something. <laughs> and the zoology department here at UNE picked it up and mm. said, we need somebody to rear insects for us for our research. Mm. I was like, yeah, cool, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> so I came out here for a, I had a year off. I worked part-time here rearing Heliothus, which is now Helicoverpa, which is one of the biggest pests of cotton in Australia. And so I had thousands of children in the insectary and I fed them daily and I grew them up and I handed off the adults to researchers. So I was in an entomology lab for mm. a year, um, met amazing people. Um, and I think I, I liked insects before that. I collected butterflies. I had a nature box, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think mm. I, I came from being a natural ecologist to having a year in an entomology lab and going, this is where it's at. Mm. This is what I want to do. But I still didn't really know that. Mm. Um, I also was a dancer, so my university preferences <laughs> were performing arts and science. Mm. Woohoo! <laughs> I love I that. I think mine were jazz studies and marine biology. So oh, there really? you go. <laughs> oh my god, we're so similar. <laughs> but why didn't you do jazz? I, I felt like I should make a sensible grown-up decision and and do a science degree because I thought if I just did music I'd be a struggling artist my whole life Did you? and I could do that as a hobby yeah otherwise. oh bingo <laughs> but this is what I thought I was like I can there's I, it, and the same thing like science was complex and mm. had machines that go bing and stuff like that <laughs> and that costs money and that's serious yeah. and that's but I can dance whenever I want right yeah and do you still dance yeah, I do. I just danced last night. My family's away, actually, so I totally cranked, <laughs> cranked it. But I don't teach anymore, and I do miss it, actually. Yeah. But um, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I feel like arts can be, always be a hobby. But maybe there's also that part of us that has a has a need to understand mm. and needs a process, an official process that mm. the world recognises to use in order to kind of be taken seriously in what you're learning about the world. Yeah. And I definitely didn't avoid the struggling artist thing by doing science. Because now you're just a struggling scientist. Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we talk about it a lot. Whenever you talk to people from the arts, we're kind of in the same career path. Totally. We're we're pitching our skill set to granting agencies or whatever. Yeah. saying let us generate this new knowledge for the benefit of the society yeah in the same way the artists do that with whatever they're working on yeah absolutely yeah well because as an artist you learn about yourself during the process but you also learn about a whole heap of other topics well, yeah, and concepts as you explore an idea yeah. in some way it's kind of just what scientists are doing they're exploring an idea using a particular direction or methodology mm. and artists get a free process 
get the free golden ticket to use whatever process they want. Mm. And I, the, well, the thing I love about that is that it teaches a lot of other people that there's not only one process to understand mm. things. <laughs> so that probably makes sense then that this you're more about STEAM than STEM. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I want people in Armadale to learn that too because STEM, I, you know, isn't it, it's interesting that a concept will take hold globally and so in big cities or maybe in, say, Europe or the States just because that's where a lot of the people are doing it or concepts or China or somewhere and that's a thing and then it dribbles down to the lesser populated countries or metropolitan areas in Australia and then it dribbles out to regional areas and so coming back to regional areas I see part of my role is kind of um, going you're not just Armadale you're not just a small town (laughs) stop using the word just back yourself as humans that are able to connect to the world now because I mean god NBN started in Armadale right so if anyone's going to be connected it's freaking Armadaleans driverless buses started in Armadale oh my god (laughs) I just turned in um, I turned behind it like I let it go past like I was just coming out of the driveway and it was coming and I was like it's coming it's still coming I should have turned in front of that thing. It's pretty slow at (laughs) the moment. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, coming back to Armadale and trying to bring some of that connectedness and understanding that you don't need to feel inferior being in a regional area, that Mm. we can do good things, even though business investors might not want to chuck a few million dollars and it might Mm. not grow as much as it would in metropolitan areas or in New York. Um, You know, people are still worth it here. Mm -mm. Well, we've we've barely gone through any of the questions I had written down. (gasps) But and have we been talking for like three hours? It's, it's almost eleven, so we're, we're a good what forty minutes in or mm. something. Do you want to pick out a question? Do you want to pick out a fun <laughs> question that we can just talk about? Well, I wanted to ask about yellow crazy ants. What are they? Where'd they come from? Why are they so crazy? It's a very descriptive name, yellow crazy ants. Yeah, because they're yeah. totally crazy. Yeah. Um, they're called crazy because there's a black crazy ant too, actually. And a oh. raspberry crazy ant. I <laughs> know. Oh, uh, because when they're disturbed through the breathing on them or any kind of disturbance, um, they just they run really erratically. Like they're really just, you know, oh my God! It's just in panic state. Um, so it's a really apt name. And they're yellow. Yeah. Yeah. So they were introduced here. They're introduced. Um, actually, to be honest, we don't really know. Um, their exact native location but we suspect somewhere around kind of mainland Asia uh-huh. or maybe kind of Malaysia-y sort of area. Is that just because they're so invasive? They're, they've gotten into everywhere? We don't know where they're originally from? Partly but um, I've been involved in some genetic work with people in Germany um, and Christmas Island and there's people still working on the genetics of yellow crazy ant to just mm. um, we've been using mitochondrial DNA to start with which usually is a pretty good indicator and takes you back to at least the center of diversity of a genus mm. but um, so they're Anaplelepis gracilipes and Anaplelepis gracilipes we think is sort of native to this mainland Asia area but Anaplelepis and now I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> the other one. <laughs> yeah, the other one is in Africa. So the center of diversity of Anaplelepis is sort of to be Africa, but it, that mm. is not actually where we're tracing any of the genetics back to for Gracilipes. Um, but let's just say for argument's sake that it is kind of mainland Asia because it's such a generalist and it, it has all those characteristics of um, a really good invasive species. So it's a generalist, it's an omnivore, it's a scavenger, it'll eat anything, it'll nest anywhere. It's not a very good digger, so it'll mm. nest in leaf litter, it'll nest in the bases of trees it'll nest in a you know machinery it'll nest in building materials nursery supplies so um, it's no surprises that it's been transported and it's tropical tropical subtropical so it's been transported all across the tropics mm-hmm. um, for the last you know couple of centuries um, yeah and it's and it's good it's it's good at numerical dominance it can build up numbers very quickly with a good protein source um, and so once it reaches peak numbers, it's, it's a formicine, so it sprays formic acid, it, um, and it's quite... So building up numbers quickly means it's got numerical dominance, so it's competitive that way. Um, it can also overcome small other insects and small prey or you know small vertebrates with formic acid, mm. so it can kill off a lot of the biodiversity in, um, in areas, and so it becomes invasive quite quickly. So you did a TED Talk about these guys a I while did. ago That's right. that demonstrated kind of why they're so invasive. If, mm. if you see them, you, you know you've seen them, right? 
Yeah, but interestingly, they look similar to some other campanos, some other ants in Australia, and we're finding this out now because they're in the they're near the World Tropic area up in Cairns. So in North Queensland, we've got an invasion. There's been an incursion in southern Queensland, number of incursions in southern mm-hmm. Queensland, northern New South Wales, um, and I think typically, and this is. This is not unique to Australia, but I think Australians have ants everywhere all the time anyway. We've got big ants, we've got stingy ants, we've got bitey ants, we've got freaking ants everywhere. <laughs> so Australians don't notice ants, I would argue, actually, mm. um, unless there's something really bad. Like people know bull ants, and when I go into a school somewhere, I go, who's been stung by an ant? Everybody. Who's been stung by a bull ant? Most people. Um, <laughs> if you haven't been stung by an ant, you know, have you got ants on your clothesline or in your house? Yep. I mean, you, there's usually an ant within sort of a two-metre radius of wherever you are. And yellow crazy ants look remarkably similar to a small Campanotus group um, or some other ones mm-hmm. anyway, some sort of big meloferous and other things. So, but no, you don't necessarily these, see them. They no. these big... What you, carpets? What do you call them? Yeah, yeah, well, super colonies, but I think researchers now are not, don't really like that word. Mm. Um, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast, <laughs> actually, about the ecology of super colonies and invasive ants, which, you know, would be good to talk about. But, um, yeah, but super colonies, so high-density areas of unicoloniality. So they have... They cooperate between nests, so they're not necessarily territorial between nests. So the perception is that most ants will have one queen and they have one nest and at the boundaries of their territory they'll fight to protect that or at a food source or something like that. But that's not the case with yellow crazy ants. They will um, they will cooperate between nests of the same species. Mm-hmm. Um, they will have multiple queens in one log on Christmas Island that we broke open in this super colony, there was upward of 1,500 queens in this one log, which was sort of one nest and mm. just this uber centre of reproduction. I can't even imagine the number of eggs they were pumping out every day. Yeah. What, given so, that they're so prolific, mm. what on earth can be done about them? Yeah, good question. Well, we know from partly from my work on Tokelau and some other work that... Um, and this is actually the same with reeds, like marsh reeds as well, is there are genetic strains that become invasive and there are genetic strains that are non-invasive that live mm. quite happily and coexist with other ant species. Um, and in fact, yellow crazy ants on Christmas Island coexisted with other ant species for quite a long time before they boomed in population. Mm. So boom-bust cycles in invasive species are common as well. Um, Yellow crazy ants, there's a number of reasons why they did boom and not least they can access carbohydrates through scale insects and honeydew producing insects in rainforests, which they've done all over the world as well, Seychelles, Malaysia, Australia. Um, so they only boom at certain times of year and that's and really it's partly a management political and a partly biological decision of, because of in the environment that you're in about whether you can control them or not or whether you should in, control them. Um, red imported fire ant in Brisbane is another really good example of you know at what point do you say that you're not going to eradicate they've been trying to eradicate mm. red imported fire ants for over 10 years and they haven't so is this just a control thing mm. at the moment um, and traditionally toxins chemicals are the only way that you can control these things but on Christmas Island this is another reason I love this project and this whole understanding of an island ecosystem Because what is driving the population's numbers of yellow crazy ants on Christmas Island is honeydew-producing insects, we know the strength of the mutualism there is such that if you... Oh, hello. (laughs) If you kill one partner, the other partner will decline in numbers. We've been toxic-baiting ants, and when we do that, we see scale insect numbers decline, but what they've been doing for the last few years there is looking at parasitoids of the scale insects and trying to target the scale insects with biological control to see if that reduces ant numbers for a long-term kind of thing. And this is the only place in the world we know we're doing this, mm-hmm. um, is trying to replace toxins completely with a biological control. We can do that because it's a small island laboratory. We don't have um, you know, outside... It's a closed population, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but on, in North Queensland, um, it's a combination of insect growth regulators and toxins that they're trying to reduce the population. And if they get into World Heritage Area, we don't know exactly what they're going to do, but we know it's probably going to be bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's 
that's a high stakes project who we don't want them to spread there. So it's, there's a lot of baiting, monitoring, surveillance going on to try and contain and eradicate them. So people can check out your TED Talk online on these ants and the work you did. Mm. But if people want to find out about the boiler house, mm. if any steampunkers want to plan their next family holiday or, mm. or get involved somehow, it, it has a website already, right? Yeah, uneboilerhouse.org.au. Mm-hmm. So we're just kind of, well, the website's changing a lot at the moment as we add new things. You can learn about the history there, what we're going to do. There's a giving page. We're right, we need, it's an $18 million project. We're not doing this, you know, by halves. <laughs> uh, so any, anything helps. Uh, yeah, any so amount helps. So it's open helps. for public donations, is it? It absolutely is. And so we're, any, as I said, any small amount helps and goes towards the building, but there's experiences and encounters within the boiler house that are totally achievable donations for people. So mm. if you want to have the James O'Hanlon um, tinkering space, you could donate <laughs> to that. You could donate you know, an amount. Um, we've got an agricultural experience because we're capitalising on UNE's research strengths as well. We'll have, we're, we want to have a giant brain in there so that you can <laughs> climb inside. So if you'd like to help you know, design anything like that, music, physics of sound, mm. patterns and numbers... Uh, we're going to have uh, energy production and that narrative of old technology, coal-fired boiler house right through to renewables, how much energy we're using, how do we generate it, all that sort of stuff. Engineering, what else have we got? We've got a library. I really like the idea of calling something spending ages in pages. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. it's right. yeah. Well, maybe we'll have to do this again another time soon and get updated on progress and... Ask all the other questions I had. <laughs> Sorry, I just blabbed so much. No, it's great. You you have a, a varied and interesting career. Yeah. We, we could have just done a whole podcast on ants. We could have. <laughs> or actually really what my research passion is, is the control of invasive species in natural environments. All right, the next podcast we'll kick <laughs> off with that one and then see if we end up back at arts and gymnastics. Didn't we talk about that? Uh. <laughs> Maybe, oh, I wore a skirt. We can't even do a handstand right now. That's bad. All right, well, next time. It's been really good talking to you. And if also people can follow you on Twitter. Oh, yeah, Beyond Bug Girl. Yes. Are you, are you still sticking with that name? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a really intermittent tweeter. I, I like I tweet for conferences and when I get excited about something and I go hell for leather for a few days and then I'm not there. But, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. And thank you guys for listening. Check us out on social media at Institute Science and also at InstituteScience.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.